essentially what we had to do was we had to find this lamb, a lamb that had been killed first, um, and then we had to look, there were a few indications. Uh, they wanted to look at the hooves to see if they had dirt on it to kind of indicate that it had been up and walking around. Uh, they would look for, look in the mouth to see if the tongue had been pulled out. So that's one of the first places an eagle wants to go is they want to eat the tongue out when they kill a sheep or a lamb. And if they're stillborn, then they go into rigor mortis pretty quickly. So it's not very easy for an eagle to actually get into the lamb's mouth and pull that tongue out. Hey everyone, welcome back and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the creators of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking system available. For more information on their GPS systems and other fine telemetry products, go to marshallradio.com. And this week's episode brings you all another couple of fellow Indiana natives being Tanner Baird and Dane Erickson. Tanner is currently studying law at the University of Texas and has graduated from Texas A&M with a bachelor's in animal science. And Dane is also going to Purdue University studying agricultural economics and political science. And both of these guys were fortunate enough to be a part of the eagle depredation study that occurred in Wyoming this past year. And I thought it would be cool to have them share their experiences with us and kind of tell us a little bit about what all went into the study and how they went about doing it. So without further ado, I give you all Tanner Baird and Dane Erickson. All right, and three, two, and one. Boy, today turned out to be a horribly crappy day. Um, today was supposed to be another wonderful Indiana meat day, and unfortunately, uh, the guest speaker, um, he lives in Canada, Lynn Oliphant, and uh, he ended up having to cancel today because it was negative 5,000 degrees in Canada, and, uh, well, 100% rain in Lafayette, and... All that kind of good stuff, but fortunately, um, our guest this week, Tanner, um, agreed to go ahead and meet with me anyway, because I had to still come up and get about 30 pigeons or so from someone who's relocating them, and uh, so fortunately, I was still able to kind of salvage some productivity for the day, even though it turned out to be a crappy day, but anyway, so how's things going, Tanner? Going well. Uh, I guess if we can't have a falconry meet, doing a falconry podcast is just about as good as we can get. So yeah. happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a uh, it's it's a nice consolation prize. I think sure. so for Absolutely. sure. And we also have um, a buddy here with you, correct? Yes, sir. By the name of Dane Erickson. Cool. So Dane, you said that you've been around falconers and everything. You just not ever really decided to take the plunge yet is just kind of uh something that you're just uh subjecting yourself to continually because of uh just you know sheer self-punishment or that's about that's about right so tanner and i kind of grew up together and i i'd go hunting with it i'd go hunting with him but most of the hunting i do is with a gun um so uh my background in the eagle project though that we did out in wyoming is more from a livestock side oh okay cool so We'll get into that here in just a little bit, but uh, so Tanner, if I remember right, you said you're going to college in Texas, right? Yes, yes sir. Which which university was that again? Uh, so I'm at the University of Texas right now. Okay. Um, uh, all my A&M friends will probably rib me for saying that, but yeah, University of Texas School of Law right now. I um, okay. did my undergrad at Texas A&M, and then uh, before that, to, went to a junior college called Casper College in Wyoming. Uh, for two years, but yes, you're in Texas right now, living in Austin. Wow. Okay. So you're already, uh, 
you're already pretty well traveled then for uh for someone as as young as you are yeah absolutely i've uh, had a chance to live in a lot of different places um practice falconry in a few different places as well so it's uh it's been fun. Um, I've really, as far as falconry goes, I started when I was 16 in Indiana. I got to practice it for two years here, then went to Wyoming for two years, and then College Station for two years. So I never got to hang around long enough to really, I think, figure out how to do falconry in that area real well. Um, so I've kind of dabbled in a little bit um, every now and then. Um, but yeah, I haven't, fortunately, haven't stayed anywhere real long to really fly a bird for a for a long extended period of time. Gotcha. So he's a lot of... Uh you know, released at the end of the season kind of thing? Or did you have any captive bred birds or anything that you took from state to state? Or Right. Um, so I've only actually flown three birds. Uh, I've been a falconer for six or seven years now. I uh, took a couple years off when I was in college just because I thought I, I at various times I didn't have the habitat for the bird, didn't have uh, time for a bird. Uh, I started in Indiana with a red tail that I flew for two years. Um, that was actually the only wild caught bird I ever flew. Uh, unfortunately he died, um, just a couple weeks before I was set to release him, um, had a, had an incident and the weathering area for him and just kind of one of those freak accidents. And I wasn't, wasn't home and around for whatever reason that day. And, uh, uh lost him a few days after that. Um, but after him, I, I went to Wyoming, everybody told me I want to have time to fly a bird in college. And I, I realized that I was sitting around watching a lot of TV, uh, my first couple, my first year of college. So I ended up getting a captive bred Harris Hawk. Uh, flew her on jackrabbits in Wyoming. That was a that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. Um, but then I moved to Texas, and at least in the area of Texas I was in, the, it, there wasn't the best habitat for rabbits. Uh, fire ants really did a number on the rabbit population down there. Um, the undergrowth was so dense in the any woods that I could hunt, it was difficult to go after squirrels. So I, I ended up selling that bird just because I didn't have the game to flyer. Uh, and then the next bird I got was my, my, uh, hand-me-down falcon, uh, as I referred to earlier, um, ended up getting that bird off Raptor's nest. Um, because in, in college station, we didn't have rabbits or squirrels or a lot of game species, but one thing we did have were duck ponds. So I thought if I could get, you know, this older falcon going on ducks, uh, I think that would be a lot of fun. Didn't quite have the success that I wanted to with them. Uh, I needed to figure out some more quirks of the whole long wing deal um, a little bit better. So a lot ended, of them. Yeah, there are. <laughs> There's about 20 extra quirks you got to go through. And luckily, I find them more fun. Uh, not everybody does. Uh, for the same reason why I don't really have much interest in flying acceptors, <laughs> I can understand why there would be a lot of people not want to fly falcons. Right. That being said, I love falcons. I love their personality, but I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, I trained that prairie, and then it just died suddenly on me. Yep. And, uh, you know, I had him about ready to hunt where I wanted, you know. But mm -hmm. um, this this one that I've got now, this uh, this Peregrina Jeersaker cross, so it's kind of weird, tri-bred almost. But, right. But right. Um, I, I've got him just about ready right at this point. going up to a thousand feet now right yeah over a thousand yeah yeah, yeah. On the drone which right. the drone part is the easiest part it's the transitioning right. from that that's yeah. to hunting that's difficult yeah, yeah. yeah. but right. uh, but anyway go back to the fire ant thing real quick what, what oh yeah, yeah what, what's the, what was the deal with that Ex explain that a little bit more because I, I how how did the fire ant thing affect you know the the population right. of your quarry yeah so i hope i'm not just spewing nonsense on here but it's uh oh, i'll stop it, you if you're spewing nonsense. It's well good. it's been repeated enough i i think it's uh, at least a good rumor um so what i've been told is that um essentially when rabbits are born um they're not real mobile um they don't have fur yet 
and they're real vulnerable to fire ants finding sure. them okay. uh, when they're young. So the fire ants are so prevalent in kind of the eastern area of Texas that I was living in that uh, what I was told at least is that the rabbit numbers were down because essentially when they were born, they had a, a pretty long window where fire ants could find them and, and eat them. Uh, huh. So, yeah, okay. but I can't say there were there were hardly any rabbits that I could find in the area of Texas I was in uh, for one reason or another. Well, <laughs> I, just because I'm a, I'm a geographical idiot. So where exactly is Texas, you know, like your, or the, the part in Texas you were living, you said is, is still kind of close right. to the university or whatever. I don't even know where, where right. the university of yeah. Texas is. I mean, honestly, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so out of the loop with a lot of the colleges and everything. That, right. Right. So yeah, kind of go into that a little bit. Uh, yeah. So when I was at Texas A&M, um, that's in college station, which is about two hours east of Austin. Um, so it's not really eastern texas it kind of shares some geographic similarities with eastern texas uh, a lot of the grass is the same a lot of the landscape looks pretty similar and they have a lot of fire ants so um, game wise it just it wasn't great for what i was wanting to do in that area of the country i'm living in austin now i'm further west uh, I, I think the game's a little bit better there i'm closer to the hill country where i could go out west and uh, maybe find some jackrabbits but um, yeah, I ended up getting, I ended up selling my, uh, Falcon once I started law school, I, I figured out pretty quickly. Um, last couple of weeks of law school, I didn't see my apartment in the daylight. Uh, I was always at the school studying. So I figured did not have time to do a Falcon justice. Uh, so I ended up, uh, selling him to a guy uh, pretty shortly after that, but gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's any, any kind of degree like that for sure is, is very intensive. I mean, I, I went to school for respiratory therapy. I don't right. know if you've heard and me mention it previously before, but, but yeah, there, there was times where I could, could remember just thinking, I don't, I don't even know how to think right. You know, let there, you know, I function right. Functioning was, was almost kind of like on auto, autopilot for a while. It was mm -hmm. kind of weird, but, um, right. health professions, law, you know, any kind of stuff like that it's it's very i i totally understand in right other words, so. yeah if i've learned one thing it's that uh, when you turn on the uh, cable news programs and folks talk about that you know this thing or that thing is easy from a constitutional law perspective they're they're wrong there's nothing easy about constitutional law or law in general i don't think so <laughs> yeah I, well i i never was under that illusion whatsoever <laughs> yeah. so i'm not really sure how many people could get suckered into thinking that um i mean if you've ever just just read basic legal jargon you know like so i i also have been involved in music for a long time and right and uh whenever i briefly learned even just about the the music business contracts and mm -hmm. and stuff like that i was just like i was blown away by just how much legal jargon can be put into an agreement that is totally incomprehensible right and yeah. <laughs> what you can comprehend could feasibly be null and void later in a contract just by other jargon that's unreadable right make negating the jargon before it right. just throw a yep. just to throw a little loophole into the agreement and stuff and i, I yeah so uh kudos to you for wanting to go into that it sounds terrible and miserable to me but well, to, each their, to each their own um but what exactly are you wanting to are you wanting to branch into more conservation type stuff with that or what, what how are you wanting to use that um, so ideally, if I can, um, my background in college was I was an animal science major. I graduated from Texas A&M with an animal science degree. I looked at a lot of production livestock systems, ways of um, basically creating or growing protein and, and producing protein in this country. Um, I would like to work somehow adjacent to that if I can. I think that in a lot of ways, I kind of have a foot in each world because I, I would 
hunt on BLM land where there were cattle there. I would, um, you know, I, I, I understand the need to produce food for people. I also understand some of the challenges that conservation is facing. I, I really think the only way that we're going to do anything positive in both of those worlds, if we kind of work with each other, whereas it seems to be a lot of the ag people are yelling at the conservation groups, the conservation groups are yelling at the ag people. And uh, I think there's a, a whole lot of room for us to both reach our priorities on that. So whether that's working eventually in-house for an ag company um, or, I don't know, I guess we'll see. Man plans, God laughs, we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds, oh my God, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> anyway, um, so, well, you said that you pretty much uh I'm, I'm addressing Dane right now. Um, so you said that you pretty much grew up around that world, though, right? As far as uh, raising livestock, and and I'll go into that a little bit, and kind of then tie that into how you got um, got to know Tanner and and kind of your relationship. Then sure, we had a little bit of everything growing up. I grew up on a goat dairy uh, near Lafayette, Indiana, and we also had a lot of poultry. So the poultry is how I met Tanner. Tanner and I were always both interested in birds, birds of prey and otherwise. So we raised pigeons, chickens, ducks, geese, and showed them in 4-H. And then uh, Tanner and I were talking about birds, and I found out he was uh, getting into falconry. And then we started hunting together. I kind of took a different approach. I was always a little bit, I didn't want to invest, um, you know, the time and not end up having an, enough time to, for a bird. So I, I kind of uh, went a different route with the hunting and, um, you know, hunt deer with a gun like like a normal person, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, um, people that, that have a much higher success rate with what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. Um, so that's kind of my background with that. Um, and then um, I'll, I, can I tell a little bit more about myself? Then? Sure. Yeah, go for it. So I, I'm a, a junior in agricultural economics at Purdue University now. Um, the, the project we did in Wyoming over this summer kind of led me into more of a conservation route with my major, and I, I've, I've been completing research at Purdue involving uh, the economic effects of chronic wasting disease and deer uh, up in Wisconsin. So it all kind of ties together. Uh, you know, there's a lot that impacts uh, the, con the economy within conservation, and um, studying you know, livestock and conservation are almost one and the same. Okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, that's, that's all once again, just way over my head. I've, I've, <laughs> I, I grew up in a rural area, you know, so, I mean, I had friends that were involved in a lot of that and, you know, obviously the, the, the 4-H, you know, type stuff and, and all that kind of, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But I, I never really, uh, had any kind of, um, foot in that door, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, I find it all interesting, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around all the issues that go into it because I've never had to deal with it. So, I mean, what, what I keep hearing and a big reason, so you know, I've got a lot of friends now that are kind of converting to the vegetarian, like vegan route and all that kind of stuff, mainly because of, of what they promote and, um, you know, basically keep telling people about the overall waste of, of cattle and, uh, all that. I mean, what, so elaborate on that a little bit. I know this is kind of uh, a little off topic of what we're going to eventually get into, but just satiate my own curiosity a little bit. How much of it is propaganda and how much of it is, is real. I mean, what's, I mean, for someone that's, that's actually dealt with it hands on for most of their life. I mean, what, what, what are the real ecological effects of, of having so much cattle and, and using, 
um, so much meat to feed people. Tammy, well, you want to take this one? <laughs> I guess how, how, how long do we have here? Um, <laughs> yes. As long as we want. Well, so there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a couple things. And I know some vegetarian friends as well. They're, they're great people. Um, my opinion is they're somewhat misguided, I think. Um, so I, I don't, I, I actually personally think that uh, you're doing more good for the environment if you're eating cattle than you are if you're eating hummus or whatever else the vegetarians eat. Um, so the, the thing is, I, I've looked at some of the studies they cite. Um, the majority of cattle in this country are raised west of the Mississippi, uh, where the ground is very arid, it's very dry, um, having water access is an issue. Uh, you can't really grow crops out where most of the cattle are, and what they're eating are the undigestible uh, structural carbohydrates that you and I can't digest because we're not ruminating animals. So they're eating grass, they're eating forages, they're eating stuff like that, and they're converting it into uh, protein that we can then eat. Okay. Um, so a lot of the studies will talk about, well, we have to feed them this many pounds of you know plant matter in order to get a pound of meat. Um, some of that's varied because we're not we're really raising them to a mature weight on things that we can't eat and then the last 180 days of their life uh, the cow will go to what's a feedlot uh, where they're then fed a uh, corn-based diet usually um, it varies area to area in idaho uh, they feed a lot of potatoes that aren't good enough uh, to make the mcdonald's uh, menu um, so there, there, so there's a lot of food waste that gets fed to them so i, I don't think it's wasteful at all to eat cattle and then I mean, the fact of the matter is land is going to be used uh, for the in the system that we have. We're going to use land in the way that we consider it to be most valuable to be used. So if you have areas where cattle are grazing, cattle are roaming free, uh, that provides an economic incentive to keep those places a little bit more open. So in places like Florida, uh, cattle ranches are really essential to the wildlife corridors that they have in that state so that... Um, endangered species can move throughout the state because if you didn't have the cattle ranches there um, then you would have subdivisions and you would have um, all sorts of animals and not be able to migrate like they used to so um I, that's a, that's a bit long-winded but i no that's exactly <laughs> what i was looking for like so you know because all you hear basically is you know all the all the uh all basically you know the the cow waste and everything right. is, is is just terrible for you know the the land it's, right. not, it's not so much the 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 size of the land that, that you're grazing them on or anything like that so much they you always just keep hearing that it's all the waste that they produce is you know right uh, it's bad for the the ecosystem this that and the other but at the same time you know i've i've always kind of you know i've always bought a little bit more i think more into the arguments of you know you kill a lot more wildlife and you right. you're um you're doing a little bit more harm by producing way more crops mm-hmm because of you know i mean there's so many uh rodents rabbits all, all these different things that you're actually killing right incidentally right. you know by managing crops and mm-hmm. stuff but yeah so i am I'm, I'm just like most <laughs> most secondhand bystanders you know i right. i don't know i right. have no idea so right. just to satiate my curiosity like i said i wanted to, to ask you guys about it because mm-hmm. i mean i don't know personally too many people like that are reliable sources, you know, right. for, for agriculture. So all that being said, um, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I appreciate the input because I have no idea. And <laughs> like I said, if there's anything, is, is there any other points that you can think of like why you would want one versus the other other than just personal 
beliefs. Well, there's or... a there's a lot of a belief about inhumane treatment of animals. I, I think, I mean, I guess I'll let Dane jump in on some of that, but I, I personally think that's a little overblown. And then I guess a little bit about climate change. You know, people talk about methane that cattle produce. Um, it's worth noting that um, when the Jamestown settlement was made, there were the same number of bison roaming free in this country than there are as there are cattle right now. So there's not really been a change in large ruminant animals living on this continent. And I, I, I think some of those claims are a little bit overblown, but Dane might, I mean, did I, did I miss something there, Dane? I... Well, you did a very good <laughs> job of taking an objective approach. Yeah. My own opinion on the matter, um, we, don't, we don't have to get into that, but um, I think that utopian ideals really haven't gotten people too terribly far. If you look at historically, uh, historically speaking, um, at the end of the day, if a farmer thinks that he can make money off of cattle, you know, do it. You can't grow avocados in Nebraska. So um, it's just kind of the way it all works together in the ecosystem that you're in. Uh, farmers have to work with um, the land they have and, you know, respecting the wildlife and everything there and the weather. And, um, you know, within a certain, you know, regulatory frame, you know, do what you want and eat what you want. Um, so that's just my humble opinion on the matter. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, in the end, people are going to have their preferences. I mean, as far as the beliefs and then just the overall preference and what someone wants to eat, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I don't want anybody telling me that I can't eat a steak. Right. You know, just yeah. like I'm not going to yeah. tell any of my good friends that they should stop <laughs> eating salads all the time or right. whatever. You right. know, I mean, but, but at the same time, um, I'll, I'm just like anybody else that, you know, is I like to be informed yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, for the most part that, that gives me a lot better idea than what I had before. <laughs> I mean, and, and you brought up a really good point about the, the bison, which mm-hmm. having had bison before, I wish that there were way more oh, bison. I, I mean, do too. I love Absolutely. bison meat mm-hmm. way more than, than cow. I think right. overall, I mean, I think it's even healthier for you right. too. Right. Um, speaking of which I've been told before that for whatever reason, they don't have near, the the same amount of disease with with bison being you know is is cattle well how much truth is in that um they, i don't know if it's just the the blood type difference or whatever mm-hmm. but i've heard before that that like a lot of the same cancers and and other diseases that that you run into with cows that you don't really find that so much in bison like how much truth is there right um do you, do you know, know anything or... about that dane i've never heard that before actually well the thing about wildlife populations is you could have the exact same um you know critters you could have bison in captivity and you all all of a sudden you start to discover these diseases because out in the wild they'll just die off you know then you sample the ones who are still alive and they're the strong ones and it's like wow bison are really healthy (laughs) you know when that they just didn't die so well and it makes sense too from the standpoint also we don't mess with them as much so you know we don't obviously inject them with near as many hormones antibiotics and everything else to to I, I, at least i don't think we do with with bison do we i mean i i, I have no idea i, I just, i've been told that we don't because the the usda regulations aren't involved near as much but I mean, once again i yeah i i know dane feels strongly about the hormone stuff he may uh, have a thing or two to say about that any antibiotics or, or things like that that are injected into beef are for the cow's own good. And by the time it reaches 
the market. It's they they've been uh, worn off. I'd say the bigger issue to look at may be selective breeding. I mean, in dogs, look at like Chihuahuas can't properly have puppies, and Bulldogs have all these health issues. Sure. If you really wanted to get into like a selective breeding standpoint, you could look at like uh, cattle, like miniature cattle, and like why people breed them and like the the health effects versus like a, a healthy genetically diverse wild bison i'm sure there's a difference there but in terms of antibiotics or things like that i don't think that that would have any effect on a cow's health other than helping it so i mean as far as the the belief system as far as you know why you know kids are starting puberty so much younger and all that kind of stuff do you buy into that argument as far as you know uh <laughs> all, all these all these you know all, all the chicken and the beef that that they ingest from an earlier age you know all the 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 hormones and stuff that they might be you know uh, eating secondhand from what we give these guys i mean what so you don't really buy into that either i probably no. <laughs> don't buy into that uh either okay. i honestly kids just need to get outside more and eat some dirt and build up that <laughs> immune system well i've got i've got an 11 year old that he is um uh, literally about 10 pounds lighter than me at this point and almost as tall already. <laughs> yeah. And he started in to all that a year ago when he turned 10. And right. I remember feeding him a heck of a lot of Tyson chicken right. tenders when he was yeah. young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's always what I joke about as far as that. But I mean, like I, said, I, I, I don't talk to enough people about this kind of stuff to really get right. a really educated, formal opinion on it. So like I said, well, it really helps me to hear that and you know i can understand where some people also might think that well i mean obviously they've they've got a hand in all this stuff so they're gonna have a bias anyway and and all that but i mean it is yeah. there anything else that you can think of to really add to that well I mean, it, it, it may be worth noting at least as we're, you're talking about hormones and starting puberty early and all that stuff um as far as so most animal species it's actually illegal to inject hormones into them um, it's been illegal for some time you, you can't give injections to poultry i uh, can't give any essentially the only livestock species where we use hormones um, are in cattle and we only do that because we castrate them early because uh, it kind of it helps meat quality uh, for eventually when that uh, steer becomes a steak sure, and we sure. will so we'll implant a um, we'll implant a basically hormone device into their ear which replaces some of the growth the hormones that they would have naturally gotten from if they still had their testicles right but not but not so much as to, to make the meat right, overly right. tough so, and everything yeah else. so we're not putting anything into them that they want to naturally already have and then um, obviously, since that's in their ear, uh, that never gets eaten by a consumer. And there's actually there's been studies on, you know, how much hormones, uh, quote unquote, you're getting from uh, when you eat something. Uh, comparing that to vegetables, uh, you might if you're worried about starting puberty early and estrogen levels, uh, you might want to stay away from the celery and the kale and eat more beef would be my suggestion. Well, that, that's that's something else that I was going to ask about, too. I mean, with all the pesticides and everything else. Uh, um, yeah, quit hitting the table. Tanner. My bad, my bad. <laughs> Didn't we just have this talk? We did, we did. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's all good. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I I wondered just how much. I mean, I wondered if if there was just as much, if not more, adverse things that we put on our crops with the pesticides and everything else that, um, that we add and, and have to worry about. You know, like growing a successful crop. That if I mean, is it really all that different? I mean, as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in the long and short of things, right. is it is it better or worse, or are we just doing ourselves a disservice equally, just in a right. different way? 
Yeah, I honestly, my opinion on the whole thing is there's a there's a lot of currency in fear mongering, and uh, what what gets a lot of clicks and likes on Facebook are people who make some outrageous claims about stuff we're eating. Uh, I mean, you can go all the way back to when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. Um, that you know, people people care a lot about what they eat, um, and some of they it's should. true. Some of, yeah, absolutely, they should. Um, but you know, some of the, even when we're talking about you know pesticides and and herbicides that are sprayed on crops, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of regulation that goes into that about when that can be sprayed, when it can't be sprayed. Um, uh, there's very little chance that you ever get any of that as a consumer. Um, we have I I don't I Dane feel free to jump in on this if you'd like, but I, at least my understanding is we have by far the safest regulatory program in the world uh, when it comes to our food production. And, and we have some of the safest food to eat in the world as well. So I, I don't necessarily buy into some of the fear mongering about, um, you know, spraying pesticides and spraying herbicides on crops. And especially not when it comes to beef, I, I definitely like my steaks. So <laughs> it's an interesting case study, I suppose, to, to look at wildlife meat consumption um, in, in terms of bypassing totally the regulatory structure and just uh, understanding what it's like uh, to eat natural meat, kind of how it was back in the day. And the falconry community and the hunting, the larger hunting community as a whole understands that better than anyone else. And it's interesting now that we're seeing this uh, kind of subculture of hunters who um, are, are just, they kind of have hopped on that train that are, that's like organic and uh, no hormones, things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, you got to feed the world and not everyone can go out with a, a bird or a gun and, and catch dinner. Uh, and you know, you have to have those cornfields and feedlots and cattle. Um, to, to feed the world. Also, people just just eat what you want. It's, don't, <laughs> don't overthink it. <laughs> all right. Hope you all have been enjoying the second episode of season two so far. And thank you to you all who have donated and helped support us and also bought our patches. The uh, response to those continues to be awesome. And we are definitely still humbled and greatly appreciative of your support and also as always thank you to marshall radio telemetry for helping us to continue to bring these episodes to you all all right well now it's time to turn it back over to tanner and dane and let them go a little bit more into their eagle depredation experience and what they found so let's get back to it Well, I mean, I, I know, like I said, it's it's a little off topic, but thanks for for humoring me on that yeah, anyway. But, absolutely. But getting back to the more of the the subject matter at hand, mm -hmm. so this all kind of inspired you guys uh, once you found out about you know the eagle situation and uh, kind of where things are at with our ability to take eagles and the restrictions on everything uh, involved with that. Um, so. Explain then just how you guys wanted to, you know, decide one day that, oh, well, I really want to get involved in this whole thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like, like, how, how did you um, get involved with, with the depredation aspect of it? And I mean, just why you even wanted to, to mess with it and uh, just kind of go from there a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess 
I, I guess I'll say um, this kind of started for me by spending too much time on Facebook. I uh, was scrolling through and saw an ad where uh, they were be sending falconers and people interested and doing this study out to Wyoming to basically document eagle kills. And I lived in Wyoming for two years, absolutely loved it. I've been looking for a chance to get back ever since I left. Um, and I saw this and said, oh, that sounds pretty neat. And I think the next day, uh, Dana and I were smoking cigars somewhere. And uh, I mentioned this and, and then uh, Dane figured he'd send in his application as well. And must not had too high of standards because they picked both of us to, to go out there and do this. Um, and Somebody's that's kind of do it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So that's kind of what got the ball rolling for us, I think. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, for me, it was that sense of adventure. You know, someone says, why don't you go out the middle of Wyoming and, you know, sleep in a tent and not shower and walk around, walk 16 miles a day. Sign me up. Yeah, it's not a joke either. We did walk 16 miles one of those days. <laughs> I can believe it. I've, uh, I've gone to Wyoming. Uh, well, I've been through Wyoming a couple times, but a few years back, uh, we all went to Wyoming to uh, look for goshawk nests. And mm -hmm. stuff. So, I mean, I, it's 16 miles uh, is very easy to cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's a lot harder to cover once you get into the mountains and deadfall and all those issues. But, mm -hmm. but uh, so where exactly in Wyoming did you start doing this and who did you get hooked up with to kind of steer you in the initial directions for it? So we were about, um, we, our territory that we covered was near Kemmer, Wyoming, which is the southwest portion of the state. Um, our, our, territory ranged all the way from the border with Utah and then sort of over towards, um, what was it, Green River, uh, uh, Rock yeah. Springs area. Yeah. So we had quite a bit of ground to cover. Um, mostly, though, it was centered around Kemmer. All right. Well, um, so just how big was the area that you guys looked into though <laughs> like what was the circumference of the area that you guys looked into for for all this like how much area did you actually explore and cover probably um several thousand square miles if you want to think of it in i don't know if it was quite that you think it was that big well the area like that we were driving maybe. around yeah. um the the three main ranchers we were working with probably had um upwards of a hundred thousand acres in total combined yeah we were I, walking across yeah, I don't even want to try to estimate exactly. I, all I know is it was a it was a whole lot of land, um, and we spent spent quite a bit of time driving, and we would just try to spot bands of sheep from the road, and then once we saw them, we would then get out and hike our way way back into some wilderness and and try to see if we could find some lambs with them. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a good chunk of territory. Uh, we covered quite a bit, and we found out pretty early that um, there wasn't really a really efficient way to do it. Uh, we had kind of planned on early that we were going to sit up on a ridge and look for crows, look for eagles, look for something kind of flocking around to kill. That that did not work out. Basically, what worked out the best for us is we found where the sheep were that had lambs, and then we just started working a grid pattern where we, we really couldn't see more than three or three to five feet in front of us sometimes in that sagebrush, and we would just walk and grids to try to cover as much ground as possible to see if we could find it and just stumble upon, you know, a dead lamb that had been killed by an eagle. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I mean, my limited understanding about the subject is that's one of the major indicators um, that, I mean, as far as is looking for, you know, newborns mm -hmm. and, and, you know, being able to, dif to differentiate whether or not 
it was a stillborn versus a live. Basically, there really wasn't much wear on the hooves, and you can tell it was you know stillborn, and then you could really tell, well, whether or not it, you know, if it had been fed on, if it was actually killed, or if it was just kind of like a, a carrion um, kind of, uh, right. you know, uh, dinner for, for the eagle or, or whatever the case may be. So mm-hmm. kind of go into that a little bit. Yeah, so the USDA was very strict about that. Um, in one case, a little too strict, I think. Um, but essentially what we had to do was we had to find this lamb, a lamb that had been killed first, um, and then we had to look. There were a few indications. Uh, they wanted to look at the hooves to see if they had dirt on it to kind of indicate that it had been up and walking around. Uh, they would look for look in the mouth to see if the tongue had been pulled out. So that's one of the first places an eagle wants to go is they want to eat the tongue out when they kill a sheep or a lamb. And if they're stillborn, then they go into rigor mortis pretty quickly. So it's not very easy for an eagle to actually get into the lamb's mouth and pull that tongue out. Um, but really the knockout great, wonderful thing that we could find is if uh, essentially an eagle, when it eats something, it starts kind of in the rib area. It'll clip kind of the ribs with its beak to where they're real short, and then it'll peel back the skin um, as it eats. So we found one of those. If we looked at the skin and found hemorrhaging from where the eagle talons punctured the back of the lamb, then that was an indication that the lamb was alive when it was grabbed by the eagle. And that was really, um, seemed to be there was a lot of stress on that. And pretty almost every lamb that we found and got confirmed as an eagle kill had that hemorrhaging so we were we were pretty solid um you know if, if it has that that it was actually killed by an eagle not just fed on after it died gotcha well was there anything else that you guys looked for i mean what did was was there any other animals that you looked for other than just lambs or what what else, what other kind of livestock did you look for if any well it was just lambs that we were looking for for this particular okay. project there sure was a lot of other wildlife out there. I mean, half the time we'd be glassing a hill, and it, the sheep are hard to find. You know, out here we measure animals per acre. Out there it's acres per animal. Um, and, you you know, you get excited to see some sheep, and then you walk closer. It turns out it's just, you know, several hundred more antelope than you've seen, you know, <laughs> yesterday. And Hated um, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought... Um, like the amount of pronghorns and stuff that are out there is pretty amazing also. I mean, oh, it is. The amount that you can just see just driving down, you know, just the, the back road mm-hmm. and uh, all the prairie dogs. and everything. I mean, I, if, if you ever just want to see a super diverse ecosystem, I mean, just uh, all, all these different kinds of animals and just uh, kind of a, a small amount of area. I mean, Wyoming is definitely one of the places to go. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's, it's it's so so nice out there, and it's really beautiful too. So mm-hmm. if you just want to go and appreciate nature. But uh, so I'm I'm sure that that made that aspect of things made things um, made time go by a little bit better for you all. Oh, also, yeah. when you're out there. But so I mean, how how long did you guys take to gather all this? data up how long were you out there yeah so it was a it was a 10-day project so and unfortunately my sister was getting married directly after this study so i had to be back in indiana so it was kind of a hard deadline we were working against um so yeah we had essentially 10 days um we and and i guess do you want us to back up a little bit and just kind of talk about what we were trying to accomplish during this i mean just however you guys want to take it like i said so so essentially this project um was the result of a lot of collaboration uh, between nafa between the international eagle Stringers association uh, the wyoming wool growers association was involved in this Um, just a lot of people um, working together to try to make sure that uh, we could get this to happen and the goal was we um 
somebody in NAFA managed to get the ear of somebody who was important in the interior, the Department of the Interior or, or somewhere, and um, essentially got six Golden Eagle permits to be issued to falconers, which hadn't happened in a long time. But we had to make sure to get an eagle, to get one of those permits, we had to find an area where eagles were actively killing livestock. So we, so the, not we, uh, the higher ups that really pulled a lot of these strings together, um, identified these various ranchers where they knew eagle predation was happening. And then they put teams on the ground out there to go out and document that. So I think at the time of this um, study, we, I think two eagles had already been trapped. Um, and then, so there were four permits that were still possibly available and we had three different ranches and properties to work with. So really our goal and, and, you know, Dane and I shared the same mindset about this. Um, there was, uh, there's some grant money to get, cover gas, to go out there. Um, and a lot of people had donated to that. A lot of falconers had put money into that. And our mindset was that's a, a lot of hard-earned money that was being put towards this project. So we were going to do our best to make sure that every single one of those ranchers got a confirmed eagle kill on. Um, and, you know, early on in the 10-day study that we had time to do this, we, we ended up, or Dane ended up finding one. And we were just, we were pretty ecstatic about that. Um, but then kind of, I guess, towards the towards the end, of it, we kind of drug on. We didn't have any more confirmed kills. And things got a little bit more hairy towards the end. But they, yeah, that's that's essentially what we were uh, trying to accomplish while we were out there and, and to get those permits available for falconers. So. Cool. So as far as the criteria to allow a falconer to come in and be able to trap an eagle on those properties, mm -hmm. I mean, did it only take one one kill, like one confirmed? Uh, what, what was the criteria for being able to, to be allowed to then follow up and, and then trap one? Right. Um, so I think in some cases they would only need one, but the more you had, the better it looked. Um, I, at least, at least that was my understanding. Is that kind of what you took away from it, Dane? Yeah. Yeah. You only need one, but like Tanner said, the more evidence you can, you can show that there is an active Eagle on that property, the better it is for, for the outcome. Right. Sure. I, well, I can understand that. I mean, if you have a lot more confirmed kills and things like that, then you could uh, justify doling out more permits. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can understand that, but, right. um, so, I mean, is there, is there any other plans to, um, do another branch of research on this? Are you guys thinking about going back out there and doing that again at some point? Or is that or did, at the end of it where you guys like, uh, so that was really cool the one time we did it, <laughs> but, uh, uh, We'll just let somebody else do it the next time or right um so i would i would jump at the chance to do this again i absolutely loved it if anybody else is out there listening and, and might have some interest in this and i would highly recommend applying and uh going out there and doing that uh that being said it's kind of up in the air right now exactly what's going to happen for this coming year um <clears throat> so essentially at the beginning of the year in, in January here, uh, we had the Eagle lottery happened and 10 falconers were picked uh, to be able to get per, be eligible to go out and trap um, eagles out west. Uh, really what uh, I talked to Mike Barker a few days ago, who's the president of the International Eagle Ostringers Association. He was telling me the plan is to really have those 10 people spearhead this project uh, coming up here uh, this next summer to try to get 
permits taken and, and because they're, they're the ones who really stand the most to, to gain or lose based on how this goes. Um, as of right now, only five of those falconers have contacted um, Mike Barker or, or anybody in NAFA. So if anybody's out there listening and they've drawn an eagle permit but haven't contacted anybody or know of somebody who drew an eagle permit, uh, you know, would highly recommend you getting in contact with your NAFA director uh, or, uh, or Mike Barker if you can through the IEAA. Um, but essentially it hasn't been planned out yet exactly what's going to happen, if it's going to be a similar study or not. Um, but we did, we ended up through our study, we had, um, three, we had confirmed eagle kills on every ranch and we had permits issued. Um, unfortunately we're kind of starting from square one again this next year. Um, we, long story short, no eagles were taken for falconry based off of the permits that we had, um, established there. And we, the, the, the people doing the study had asked for an extension of those permits so that we could have a longer trapping window to get those birds off there, especially before lambing, which is really when the ranchers want them off. They want it to be a proactive thing, not a reactive thing. Uh, the USDA or whatever bureaucracy was involved in this said that you'd had to file two separate $100 applications to try to ask for that. Uh, so we, they filed both of those and then it, those, both of those applications were promptly denied. So we are starting from square one next year. So we're going to need to do a different study, I would imagine, and get out there and, and get some more confirmed, uh, lamb kills or eagle kills. So then if, if you find different data at that point, then, um, I mean, could the, uh, the amount of potential permits be less or, I mean, how, how will that affect things then? Um, well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. So I, it sounds to me that, uh, and you know, I don't know anybody involved. It, it sounds like the six eagle permits um, that have been issued that they're kind of the the people in charge are reluctant to increase that very much or decrease that. I would imagine if we don't find um, six places where eagles are killing sheep, then we won't get six permits. Um, but you know, I, I I would really I would like to see that number increased. Uh, we have. Uh, estimates I found between 20 and 30,000 golden, golden eagles in the United States. Um, it's estimated three to 500, 300 to 500 of those are killed by windmills every year. Uh, the government issues 18 permits to the Hopi Indians to take eagles and eat them. Um, but when it comes to falconry, um, you know, we're saying pretty please, will you let us have six permits to trap a golden eagle, train it, do what it would normally do in the wild naturally, and then one day release it. So it's uh, it, it seems like there's a little bit of pushback from somewhere in the government. Uh, you know, it's always hard to pinpoint exactly where that is. Um, but as of right now, it's I, I don't know. Um, I don't see us in the future expanding from the six or 10 or whatever permits we have this year um, anytime soon. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I just I was curious whether or not uh, they would try and reduce the number or not. Right. Mainly, right. you know, like so if they were going to have to have valid data each year to justify that set number, or if they were just going to kind of keep it that number um, for now, because like you said, there's, there's not been, they're, they're not all going to get filled every year. Well, I won't say that, <laughs> that they won't, but I mean, the, the, the chance of them all being filled each year, every year, um, at least in the short term, I know is, is probably not the odds of that happening probably aren't that high, but well, we have plenty of areas where eagles are killing sheep. Um, we have plenty of areas where we could theoretically trap one. And, and this last year, out of the six permits that were issued, we got four eagles for falconry. So 
um, you know, it's I think it's feasible to to fill all those permits, okay. but it's never a, a guaranteed. You yeah, know, well, that, well, everything in falconry is. <laughs> well, knowing knowing that then that that makes it a little bit more plausible then, right? Think, yeah, because right. I mean, four can easily become six. Yeah, I, I hope sure. so. Hope yeah. so. <laughs> well, and uh, hopefully at, at some point again, um, after people uh, experience this for you know, a certain number of subsequent years, then maybe the mindset, like you said, will kind of be encouraged to maybe change the outlook as far as, well, we should be allowed to, you know, fly these birds just like, you know, most of the other birds that we have in, in mm -hmm. falconry, just because, you know, I mean, it's, it's not an endangered species. And right. I mean, the, the take and, and, and trapping, you know, procedure should be, you know, pretty similar for them because that's, that's kind of what our, um, you know, legislature is for the rest of the birds and, you know, falconry right. stuff too, as long as you have an appropriate license and have jumped through all the hoops, you know, uh, the idea hopefully will eventually kind of migrate maybe towards, well, we should be able to, you know, take eagles just the same or kind of go back to that or, mm -hmm. you know, so hopefully, hopefully the, that's where things will kind of start to steer more towards. So I agree with that. We, we can only hope, only <laughs> hope. <laughs> well, cool. So, I mean, is there anything else that you can think of that would be interesting uh, that kind of came from the study to kind of add real quick before we you you got anything to change topics again? Or? Well, there's so much that we could talk about. <laughs> um, just, you know, like, like Tanner was saying, just the whole adventure of it all. Um, we, we ended up seeing moose and elk and all sorts of things out there. A badger. Um, a badger that scared the hell out of Tanner. I thought it must have been a, a rattlesnake. Or, I don't know. But um, Tanner, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, you know, I just probably want to say extremely grateful um, that we had the opportunity to go out there and do that. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we did some good, um, even though eagles weren't taken from that specific study area. Um, but really grateful to the ranchers out there who are growing sheep, who led us onto their land, who are really hospitable about everything. Um, you know, I'd say if, if people are looking to um, to help out this study in the future, I, I would imagine there it's possible, um, maybe even probable, that there will be another GoFundMe page here uh, within the next couple months once things start getting organized for another study. Um, until then always, you know, I would recommend maybe goes back to what we were talking about earlier, reach for some of the, the sheep meat when you're in uh, Walmart and looking for something for dinner. Cause those folks really, uh, have a tough living, um, out there and, and they make sure that, you know, when they're running sheep and putting an economic incentive on the land they're I mean, we saw all sorts of wildlife out there with the sheep. They're really good stewards of the land out there. And, um, Say I would say eat more sheep. So <laughs> and wear wool clothing too. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, is is there? I mean, is there going to be any other states that are going to be more actively involved in this uh, than just Wyoming? Or mm -hmm. well, what's is is there going to be? Well, at least in the short term, anyway. I mean, right. Um. So I I believe that two eagles were taken from Utah. I think this year, if I'm if I'm correct. So okay. there were two taken outside of the state of Wyoming. But the way that it was explained to me is that. In the past, the state of Wyoming has been really hospitable towards falconers. They've been really nice about letting us go in there and trap birds and working with us through the Eagle Project. So the idea has kind of been to focus on Wyoming because not only do we have a lot of sheep ranchers there that we can confirm eagle kills on and a, a, a large population of golden eagles, but we also have a state that it, it, we can kind of streamline the bureaucracy and just deal with one state bureaucracy and getting these permits issued might be you know a little bit more efficient to do that where uh, rather than have eagle take in six or seven different states but you know like we were talking about earlier i 
I would like to see this maybe not normalized, but somewhat come closer to a normalized um, falconry take to where uh, we don't have to go through this every year. And if that's the case, I, I think, you know, it'd be wonderful to have it opened up to multiple states. But for right now, uh, it just kind of makes more sense to focus our energies in, in one state and, and make sure. And there's there's a lot of eagles to trap in Wyoming. So Cool. Well, uh, I mean, that makes sense. I totally get that. But I mean, so as far as... Um, you know, your, your personal, uh, falconry career, um, I, you're going to be going back to Texas here shortly, right? Maybe yes, sir. In about a week or so. Yes, sir. About a week. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what, what are you, uh, what are you going to plan on doing? I mean, is, are you going to be birdless for a bit still because of all the schooling or what, what's your next plans? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the plan is to be birdless, um, at least in the near future here, which is really eating me up on the inside. Um, but you know, if I, I don't have the time for a bird, don't have the time for a bird. Um, sure. but yeah, that's the, that's the plan right now. Um, finish law school and then uh, maybe end up in a position where I can have a little bit more ability to practice falconry. Is the idea? Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, you you shouldn't have a, a bird if you don't have time to fly it. I right. totally agree with that. Right. Absolutely. But, uh, and then Dane, I mean, you we kind of talked about maybe uh, you know the prospects of you uh, transitioning to the dark side, so to speak, at <laughs> some point. But uh, I mean, you really have any interest of making it, or do you just like being able to put your gun up at the end of the season and not worry about it anymore? I definitely have an interest in getting into falconry at some point. You know, maybe I'll graduate college here in a year and a half and make some money or something and get into it if I have a little more time. Um, but, you know, my experience with going to field meets here in Indiana and uh, just flying a bird with Tanner have been great. The, the falconry communi uh, community in Indiana and in Wyoming, everywhere I've been, has been very welcoming to me as a non-falconer. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're biased uh, because we you know, we're from Indiana, but I, right. I truly believe that we do have a very good club here. And, uh, for the mm -hmm. most part, everyone is, is, is pretty accommodating and, um, you know, very helpful. So, right. um, but, uh, at any rate guys, uh, we're, we're almost, uh, almost out of time. Well, not necessarily out of time, but we're almost at that, that hour ish right. time. Right. So, um, any last thoughts before we, uh, before we take off and I have to drive a wonderful, you know, another four hours home and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Um, I just like to echo the sentiment, um, of gratitude for the whole project. Um, talking about getting interested in more States and navigating that bureaucratic, uh, ladder that you have to climb. Uh, it'd be great to see like a grassroots effort of, uh, falconers and citizens and just those in, in the interest of the area support the falconry community and support um, ecology and conservation of these great birds. Um, and, um, you know, just I'm really full of gratitude to the ranchers as well. Um, it's a great project. I'd encourage anyone else to, to do it. Yeah, I would, I would echo a lot of that. And, you know, just thinking back to a previous episode and talking about Indiana, there was a, a, a fellow Hoosier falconer named Greg Thomas that was on this podcast and talked a lot about solidarity amongst falconers. And I, I really think that kind of captures what we, you know, did here and were able to accomplish in this Eagle project. Uh, Dane and I were just kind of the foot soldiers to go out there and do the dirty work of finding lambs. But I mean, really, the Falconry community came together, I think, about this. Uh, when we were, you know, just going out to Wyoming, a Falconer, Gearhart Spaulding, who had never met us, never knew who we were, just opened up his home to us to let us stay there. Um, you know, Stephanie Ashley was wonderful about being out in the field with us, working, putting in the work before we got there to make sure we had the relationships with the ranchers. 
uh, while we were out there. Uh, Mike Barker and Sheldon Nicole did a whole lot of work to make sure that everything was bureaucratically in order for this to happen. So I'm just grateful for everybody. And, and there's kind of a comment that was made when we first arrived in Wyoming that kind of sticks in my mind about um, Mike Barker mentioned that he was really pleasantly surprised that so many Eastern Falconers had donated to the GoFundMe page because, you know, maybe there's certain areas, but for the vast majority of Eastern Falconers, there's not the space or ability to fly an eagle. Uh, but nonetheless, they donated money to make sure that falconers out west could have access to eagles. And I, I think that says a lot about the falconry community and what we're able to accomplish when we work together. And then when you throw in the fact that the Wyoming Wool Growers Association and ranchers out in Wyoming were willing to work with falconers and accept us onto their land and into their lives. Um, you know, I'm just really grateful for all the moving parts that came together in this uh, and makes me excited about the future of falconry for all of our falconry politics and you know disputes every now and then we we sure can come together around something and uh, do a lot of good well i mean and we have to i mean because mm -hmm. i mean where there's not very many of us so i mean right. unfortunately uh you know even though there is a divide at times uh it's not something our community can can uh can absorb very well Absolutely. I mean, like i said we kind of have to be united regardless and and uh, I think for the most part, we do a, a good job of it whenever the time comes. So, mm -hmm. but it, regardless, I mean, thank you all so much for, um, you know, providing the input. I mean, it was very, uh, very well prepared on your part as far as the data and everything. Um, I, uh, you know, appreciate you sharing your experiences with all that with me. And uh, like I said, hopefully we can do this again uh, another time. Absolutely. Um, and uh, maybe... It'd probably be a little bit harder to, to throw together since, you know, you're going to be at the opposite end of the country. But right. But uh, we find a way to make it work usually. Absolutely. So. But thank you guys again so much. Well, and, thank you. Uh, thank yeah. you. And, yeah. uh, you know, safe travels back to Texas and uh, and all that kind of good stuff. So Thank you. Safe travels back home today. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll try my best. So, All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. thanks.